This is episode 116 of Off Script with Trish Glose, intimate interviews with interesting people. Joining me today via Skype, I have Nicolette Lewis-Saint, the executive director of Healthcare Ready. Hello, Nicolette. Hello, great to be with you. Well, great to have you. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited to pick your brain and get all of the good stuff, all of the advice uh, for my community here. Uh, before we get into all of that, talk to me a little bit about Healthcare Ready. What is that? Sure. So Healthcare Ready is a national nonprofit organization that was stood up to serve as a public-private partnership right, right after Katrina. So our focus has been, since that mandate, really making sure that we are doing the coordination between the public and private sectors, partners in the healthcare industry, those who are what we would consider the dispensers, so pharmacists and providers, um, to make sure that they are being, they have a conduit to be able to coordinate directly with our partners in government at the federal, state, and local levels, and that we are focusing most acutely on the needs of those who will see disparate impacts after a disaster, those who um, have challenges getting access to care need to get their chronic care medications refilled um, before the conversation of equity and disasters was, was even a term of art. Um, the organization was really stood up to make sure that we are doing the work of serving those who need us the most during a crisis where most of their core abilities are dis disrupted. That's a common theme in some of the experts that I've talked to um, with disaster preparedness. It sounds like we should be prepared for all of this months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right? Yes, very much so. Um, I think one of the things about disaster preparedness in general is that it's often difficult to get the general society and sometimes even, you know, policymakers and, and businesses to think about what might happen when they're focused on the immediate and the today. And they're saying, you're asking me to prepare for something. It's not really certain. It may happen. It may not in my lifetime, but you're asking me to prepare. Yeah. Um, and our challenge with preparedness is that it really has to happen well before the actual event. I feel like sometimes our brain doesn't go there, right? We don't want to think about having to pack a go bag and just have it sit somewhere like it just it doesn't make sense to us, but it has to start. Right. We have to start thinking that way. Absolutely. I mean, it's scary. It's scary to think about, you know, the scenarios that often would make a great movie. <laughs> you know, they're the things that we think about as like the movies we watch. And, you know, we think about like the catastrophic earthquake mm -hmm. or the disease outbreak that shuts down society or whatever. Well, thinking about what that actually looks like in your family and what, what that looks like for your community to be able to withstand, that is scary. And in the midst of a lot of other realities, it can be hard to want to focus on that. But, you know, that go bag, really, it's it's a single thing to do, but it's the minimum that we should be doing to think about how we prepare. And it could ultimately be your lifeline in, in a disaster. Um, I do want to talk about Katrina. And just so you sort of know our situation here in Southern Oregon, as up and down the West Coast, we've seen devastating wildfires. It's um, at the time of this, when this goes up live, this interview, it'll be about a month that we've seen the Almeda fire. There's another fire here locally, but it just ripped through a couple local towns, destroying thousands of uh, homes and businesses and displacing all of those people. Um, so in my effort to just help my community, I'm thinking, what can I do? And it's to talk to wonderful, intelligent, brilliant people like yourself. Going back to Katrina, I interviewed Daniel Aldrich from Northeastern mm -hmm. University. He's a Katrina survivor. And he essentially said after that, 
he was looking for that white horse, that, you know, FEMA, and he was looking for yeah. the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, to come to his rescue, and he didn't find that. Was it really Katrina that sort of uh, flipped the switch for all of us and kind of woke up all of these people like, hey, there's, there's a lot that's not going right? Was it Katrina that did that? You know, I think for modern history, I think Katrina, 9-11, um, and Sandy, if you think about those mm -hmm. as three different events, kind of shook different parts of the system. But I think Katrina was the event that really showed what it looks like when emergency management is not prepared to meet the immediate needs of people and what it looks like to be in a situation where the needs are so overwhelming and there is no cohesive strategy to get it done. Um, and so I think that is true. Also, though, if you think about the world prior to Katrina, um, you know, 1995, maybe to 2005, we really were quiet. You know, there were some catastrophic hurricanes. A lot of them actually spared the Gulf states and actually impacted the Caribbean more. But there were, you know, there's Andrew and George, and there were some mm -hmm. other storms that really did impact the Oklahoma City bombing. You had events, but you didn't have events that actually ripped at the core of some of the inequities the way that Katrina did and really exposed what it takes to be able to mount a full-scale government response to meet that type of, of range of needs and address the disparities that were being exposed. Hmm, that's interesting, 95 to 2005, those were the good old days. Can we go back there? <laughs> Please, can, so we go, can we go back there where we were wearing chokers and watching Beverly Hills 90210? Exactly, right? Our biggest problem was what was gonna be in the TGIF rotation on ABC on a Friday night, you know? It was it was a good time. It was. Oh, that just makes me a little sad. Talk about the levels of government. We're seeing that here because we have FEMA on the ground here. And so we're hearing like residents going, whose responsibility is it to clean up? Is it mine? Is it counties? Is it the state? Is FEMA going to help? So that was that a huge challenge after Katrina, getting all of these levels of government to kind of line up and talk to each other? You know, I think part of it is um, there's a premise of how emergency management works, um, which is that things are always locally controlled. And and mm -hmm. we are supporting our partners in Oregon and, and tracking the health needs very closely. And so our hearts, but more importantly, our work is with you all right now. Um, what we see is that locally controlled means different things to different agencies, to different political leaders, to different policymakers. And so the premise is that the local government is always in control. So whose job is it? If it's your personal property, it's your job to clean up. But if you need assistance, that first line of assistance should be coming from those local organizations, that local emergency management, the fire um, departments. The, that's where the, the local assistance comes in. The concept is that when the local authorities, the mayor, county you know, commissioner, whomever, s determines that the need outweighs their local capacity to support, then the state kicks in. Gotcha. And the state's job is to make sure that as they assess the ongoing needs, especially if it's happening in multiple counties, mm -hmm. like what we're seeing in Oregon, like what we're seeing in California, it's it's more than one county. So the state has to 
have a very, very active level of control and also be prepared to request federal assistance. And that federal assistance may come in the form of money. It may just be that more money is needed to be able to pay for trash removal, pay for cleanup, pay for overtime for additional staff. But it may also be that personnel are needed to have people on the ground to assist with public assistance applications and to help people to understand what types of programs might be available to them as they are recovering from the disaster and funds can be made available and also doing the hard work of helping with the coordination, doing all of that field work. And so the idea is the hierarchy is almost reversed in a disaster, so that local is always in charge, and that those states and the feds are working in service to the locals, but that doesn't mean that the responsibility is only at the local level. That's how it should be though, right? Right. Yeah, was it it always? And I think the idea, Oh, go ahead. No, I was, was I, I just wanted to make one quick point. Like, I, I'm sorry. The idea really within emergency management is that local leaders should know their community best. And so that's the reason you say local stay in charge, because if you say we're going to put this truck over here or we're going to set up assistance here and people don't go to that part of the community mm-hmm. or that's not where the actual need is. That's why you want locals in charge, but that doesn't always seem to happen. Right, and that's what Daniel was mentioning to me, that really, you know, the, the, the folks from FEMA that are on the ground really need to be talking to the local leaders to make sure we're all in sync because we don't want, especially when it comes to rebuilding, we don't want someone from the outside coming in going, this is how it should be built when we know our community best. Exactly. And I think that is a lesson from Katrina. You know, if you Mm -hmm. think about everything from, okay, you're going to move people, you know, to the Superdome or you're going to move them to Houston. Well, how are they getting back? Someone who's a local community leader knows the answer to that or thinking about what the recovery phase after wildfires looks like and which communities you need to prioritize for cleanup because maybe those are central hubs for other members of the community. And if you can have certain communities prioritize for cleanup, you can push more resources there, which allow for people to have easier access to those resources. A Fed is not going to know that. Right. And so that's the idea, but it also requires that there's a human element that we get past, which is that egos have to be put aside, people have to be willing to talk to each other, and there's no process or system that's going to get around that. Oh, there's the challenge. (laughs) (laughs) The the E word, ego. Um, Looking at, uh, I wanted to talk about the Ebola epidemic of 2014. You played a pretty big role in that. Talk to me about that. Sure. So um, during the Ebola crisis, um, if you recall, there was a projection that came out from the CDC round about June Mm -hmm. of 2014 as the outbreak was starting that said, if we do nothing, we will lose a million lives by January. Um, And it was because that disease outbreak, um, you're talking about an outbreak that's so infectious. Mm -hmm. um, And not only are people infectious, but they are most infectious after they've died. So at the point where culturally normal funeral rites and things of that nature would happen, you can have 500 people infected from a single dead body. Whoa. Yes. So it's because at that point, all of your fluids are, are 
completely filled with Ebola virus, your tears, everything. And so in the process of preparing someone for a funeral, that's how we were seeing these high rates of transmission. And so our recognition is was that a disease outbreak anywhere is a threat to the entire globe. There's no such thing as having an epidemic in one corner of the world that's not going to be a threat for anyone else. And we needed to mobilize a global community. And so a part of my job was really working with the State Department's leadership to make sure that we were doing our part to support the WHO, making sure that they had what they needed because the WHO really wasn't set up at that time to be, you know, the the epidemiologist to the world and to be mm-hmm. in the actual trenches doing that level of disaster work. They needed money, they needed resources, but we needed to get the global community on board to recognize that this is a global threat, which meant healthcare workers going to West Africa. It meant funding being able to support those countries as well as um, the WHO. It also meant that we needed to share information and, and do a lot of coordination because science was happening in many of those countries and we needed to be able to exchange that as well. So that was a part of my role in the response. Man, it's really setting you up for 2020. (laughs) Tell me about it. Good grief. Um, In 2019, you were appointed to serve on, uh, and correct me, Baltimore Sustainability Commission with FEMA, within FEMA. So I, I got two appointments um, the uh, within FEMA, the mm-hmm. National Advisory Council, which is known as the NAC. Yes. Um, and then within Baltimore City, where I live, um, I serve on the Baltimore Sustainability Co- Commission. Okay. So um, in those two roles, what work do you, um, or I, I guess, yeah, what is your involvement with, with that? Sure. So with Baltimore, um, we so one of the things that I actually love about the way that Baltimore has has thought about planning and urban planning is that they've taken on sustainability and recognized that as a mid-Atlantic, you know, a, a city in a mid-Atlantic state, um, while they are often spared from some of the catastrophic events, they recognize that things are changing. And being spared means that you're lucky more than being right. Mm. And so they've actually incorporated their sustainability plan into their urban development plan for the city. And so as a commissioner, uh, my job is to work with other commissioners as well as the Department of Planning um, and local um, elected officials so that we are discussing how to actually implement the plan, being able to give objective feedback as a citizen and as a commissioner on proposed plans, making sure that there is engagement of members of the community across the 200 plus neighborhoods in Baltimore so that there is actual feedback that's coming in before things are decided. Um, So that's a big part of my job there. Um, With FEMA and the National Advisory Council, that's been um, it's, it's been quite a wonderful experience because we get charges from the administrator. And so my job is as a public health representative on the council. And the administrator this year gave us three charges. One was on the vision for what FEMA should be. The other was the capacity that FEMA needed to have to meet the threats of our lifetime, mm. if you could imagine, you know. Right. And the other was on equity. And so our job has been working together not to look at FEMA or the world as it is, but really to build out recommendations as objective 
third party engaged participants to say, this is what we think it should be. This is how we think we need to get to where we envision the needs being in the coming years, months, sometimes based on the way that things are going right now. Um, And these are the recommendations that we are charging the administrator to take up and consider to think about ways to transform this agency to be what the nation needs. Wow, that's kind of fun. You're like the boss. It is. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I feel like I, I, I work for more people than I ever have, but um, it's, it's, it was very interesting to get those charges though, mm-hmm. because, you know, back in January, if you can even remember such a time, we all were so excited about this year. We thought it was full of promise and possibility and 2020 could only bring good things and we could have time to vision and plan and strategize. And to get a charge, like think about the capacity that emergency management needs mm-hmm. at the top of 2020, mm-hmm. you know, who would have known right. that we would have actually had to use all of that capacity just a few months later. My husband has this theory. I think a lot of people have this theory, actually. 2020 is that idea of clarity, you know, Mm -hmm. as far as your vision. Um, And so looking back, it really is an opportunity to take a look at what's important in life. Everything becomes kind of clear on what really matters in this world. Absolutely. So I don't know. I kind of am with him there. So I'm thinking we're going to learn some lessons. We better learn some lessons from 2020, (laughs) right? Absolutely. I want to talk about recovery and those immediate needs for people. And I've been trying to put myself in those who've lost everything, everything. So all of their memories, but even, you know, and you can probably definitely speak on the fact that if you have medication, you don't have, it's all burned in this fire, all of your clothes, all of your documents and, and you know, records, all of these things are now gone. The immediate need is just to survive, I'm assuming. Right. Beyond that, it's kind of like a now what? We're, we're three weeks, a month in. Mm-hmm. Now what? Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, we, so one thing you'll hear emergency managers say, and I'd be shocked if my, my colleagues who were on previously haven't said it. Um, if you've seen one disaster, you've seen one disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to remember that because, you know, wildfires in particular, we've seen wildfires that have literally demolished one side of a block and left the other side spared. Yep. yep. You just, you've never seen anything like that, mm-hmm. right? And so when you're thinking about even how we tell people to prepare, many of those actions may not help in a wildfire situation because having a go bag near your door, you may not have been able to pick it up, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's practical. Um, having, you know, having a fireproof safe, that's about the only thing that really might have survived such a situation. And so, of course, the first focus is survival. Um, I know there are some um, programs that are being stood up. There are resources. um, So one that I always like to lift up is OnStar. For Mm. people who are in their cars, you know, if you're thinking about it, if you've successfully been able to evacuate, you might still have your car. You may not have your home. And so OnStar actually has tremendous resources to help people who are navigating a disaster. You press that button and they are using all of their resources to figure out how to help you meet your needs. Um, You know, pharmacies are prepared to be able to do whatever they can if you, you know, are 
are in need of a prescription refill, they can try to do everything they can to pull up records and give you a free emergency refill. Those are some of the things that state regulations allow for during an emergency, but that's a critical part of how we're able to make sure that those needs are met because it's not feasible to expect that someone just has everything on hand, right? It's they, They've escaped with their lives and thank God their lives have been spared, but now the rest of the system has to make sure that they have the, their remaining needs met. And so those are the types of programs that, that are in place. And I think it's important that we make it as easy for people to navigate those as possible because it's all so overwhelming. So overwhelming, so overwhelming. And we're hearing, you know, there's always critics. We're hearing critics say, well, FEMA's great in a hurricane. FEMA, if this was a hurricane here, they would be on the ground and everything would be fine. Wildfires like the redheaded stepchild of, of disasters. Do you, is there any truth in that? I think if you ask a hurricane survivor, they might tell you something different as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's different. You know, there, there are some hazards that we've had more practice in. And I think from that vantage point, there's been a lot more, you know, coordination on hurricanes sure. over the last 20 years, sure. But if you look at the last three years, every single year since 2017, maybe 2016, there's been historic wildfires. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that they're not practiced, it's, it's that the systems have to be designed mm -hmm. to be able to help people in a way that's a lot more easy um, and can be a lot more complete. And when you're thinking about, you know, the one thing that is similar between wildfires and hurricanes, if your home is destroyed, your loss of records are actually one of your biggest challenges after an event because you're in a situation where you might think, okay, I, as, as long as I have my license, I'm fine, but what if you don't? Right. What if you have to get your, so, your social security card again? What if, what if you need your immigration papers, mm -hmm. right? So thinking about, you know, those things, that's not something that FEMA is necessarily equipped to do. If you have those pieces in place, they can process you a lot quicker. But if you can't find your deed to your home, which is possible after a hurricane or a fire, right. then a lot of the programs that, that are available can't be made available to you. And, and that's where, you know, in asking you this question, who then helps these people out? Is it the community? Is it local state government? Is it FEMA to, I mean, is it all of us? It's all of us. Mm. It's all of us. And I think that's the responsibility mandate. Sometimes it's difficult when we say all of us because some people hear that and think none of us. Yeah. But the reality is it is truly all of us. It, it does require all hands on deck because every situation is going to be different. Every household may have a different set of needs or a different set of priorities. And so it does require that the local government is prepared to do everything that they can and that community organizations have the resources that they can to assist. And that national organizations actually work with the community organizations to hear what's needed and work quickly to meet that need. And that FEMA as the federal entity does their part and helps to expedite. It really does take all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is overwhelming just just in itself. Like, you know, here I'm thinking, okay, it's all of us, what can I do? Is it something as simple as, you know, offering someone my computer to say, here, do you need a few hours with my computer? Or, hey, there's a resource center that you can go to, go, go there, they'll help you figure out all this paperwork. 
It could be as simple as that. It could be making sure that for every website of a, of a legitimate resource that you can identify, there's a phone number because to your point, not everyone might have their computer anymore right. and it might be easier for them to call than to try to navigate a website. Um, it can be helping people to think about the fastest way to get critical documents. Again, they may need stamps. You know, It's basic things like, what happens if you just need to mail out a bunch of forms? Mm -hmm. You need stamps, you need envelopes. So where do they find these things? So it's anything that can really make someone's life easier. And especially for those individuals who may be older, mm -hmm. um, may have visual impairments, there are a lot of forms right now that may, you know, individuals may have to fill out in order to have some sort of assistance or restoration that are not exactly friendly if you have a visual impairment. And if you've had your glasses or whatever assistive right. devices you've had destroyed, you may need help. So, so you helping may be being at a safe distance with a mask on mm -hmm. because it's still COVID mm -hmm. and helping them to read the form and filling it out on their behalf. Okay, that's an interesting point for sure. Um, we just ran a story yesterday about a donation center uh, because I'm also hearing talking from you brilliant people that while donations come in super fast and that's great, a lot of times it's the wrong thing that we're getting here yes. as a community. Um, yes. So I said to my reporter, I said, that's what we need to do a story on. People wanting to give is great, but you have to give the right thing. And so specifically mm -hmm. asking, hey, donation center, what do you need? And one of the things they said was luggage. So people mm -hmm. don't have to carry around all of these donations in a trash bag. Yes. And I, and, and you know, I don't know if anyone mentioned this, but we call donations the third disaster. Yes, it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. There's we I've, I've just been doing research on um, I think I think it was Daniel mentioned the tsunami maybe in 2014 or no 2004. I think and I want to say it was in Sri Lanka. I, I, I may be wrong on that, but he was saying you. <laughs> tropical climate and they were getting a ma massive donations of sweaters that then they just had to throw away. So, yeah, I mean, I've been harping on donations. It's been my soapbox for sure. But it's just we can't. First of all, we have to pace ourselves for these for these victims, and then also yeah. we have to make sure they're getting the right thing. Absolutely. So what we often tell people is that if you want to donate things, don't. And the reason is, unless you are to your point in direct communication with either a family who's prepared to directly receive it or hearing from the, the individuals who are doing that coordination about the specific things they need and you are prepared to go out and purchase something that is new or you have something in your home that is new or like new, mm -hmm. chances are the amount of work that it's going to take to get that piece of luggage that's been sitting around and is dusty because it's been in your attic for mm -hmm. 15 years to a level where it would be appropriate to, to use for someone else actually would be more work than someone just running to the local pick your big box store and just buying luggage. So often giving cash to a trusted entity can give you get you further. The other thing, though, is that oftentimes people use disasters as an opportunity to clean their closets. And so you hear, and that's part of the reason that it becomes this massive logistics operation because yeah. people will donate things. We had this after, gosh, we had this after Maria. We had this um, after Harvey. You have to end up getting literally warehouse space 
so that we can have staff go through and comb through all of this stuff because there's so much stuff and most of it's not usable. It's crap. So you just, again, it's all garbage. It really, I mean, it's all garbage. But if you're thinking about it from the vantage point of wanting to help and thinking mm -hmm. about it from a place of compassion, consider that if you were in that situation, would you want someone's dusty 20-year-old luggage that has broken zippers that you can't use? Because at that point, that's as demeaning as the trash bag. That's as you know dehumanizing as, as someone having to walk around with their life effects in a trash bag. Mm -hmm. So that to me is a part of it, is using that compassion and understanding that when we donate, the best thing to do is donate exactly what's asked in the best possible condition that we can get it in. Right, and I would suggest too, if those people are like, well, I can't donate cash, then maybe you could donate your time and go to a center and just say, hey, put me to work. Sure. And even if you're at a distance, one thing that we've really seen is that social media has been a great tool yeah. for people. And some of what we've seen has been actually, I remember, gosh, maybe during Hurricane Harvey, um, there was a partner that we had that was based out in Minnesota. And she was at our home. And what she did was she mobilized members of her community and her network to say, we're going to comb through social media platforms. And if we hear people with a demonstrated need or we we can actually find people who have legitimate offers, we're going to make sure we collect those and share those with the people who we know can actually help. So that, you know, that doesn't cost money. But if you're scrolling and you see somebody talking about having a need, making sure that you amplify that and helping them to get that assistance, that doesn't cost money, but that goes a long way. Absolutely. Being that connection, right? So, oh, you need this. I can put you in touch with this person that can help you out. Connection. Exactly. Exactly. And that's huge right now, especially, you know, after post-disaster, we, we absolutely still have to be connected as a community. For sure. And I think often we, especially during COVID, we have a tendency to want to rush in, but doing that safely is important. Mm -hmm. So making sure that we are doing everything we can from a distance is, is a critical part of how we take care of ourselves and each other. Yeah. Uh, yes. A hundred percent. Are there any stories from, you know, disasters in the last few years where, you know, you were put in a position where you're watching all of this happen and you're like, ah, this needs to change. This needs to change. Too, too many to name? Every day. <laughs> Every day. Um, gosh. So, you know, I, uh, gosh, um, I'll take Harvey. Um, okay. 2017, when you, um, you know, it's, it's so crazy to think about 2017. It feels mm -hmm. like it was an actual lifetime ago. Mm -hmm. But um, when you think about the way that the storms happened, you had Harvey and all of the resources flooded to the Texas, Louisiana region to make sure that we were doing everything we could to assist. But as soon as you had those six days of rain, because Harvey was a rain event, that it actually sunk the ground. Yep. There was so much rain that it actually impacted like the, the, the ground level. Mm -hmm. So um, you had that event. And then shortly after you had Irma, and when I say shortly after, we're talking about within two weeks, there was another storm. Right. And then within two weeks, another storm. And so what we saw was all of the attention and the resources and the focus that was in Texas went to Florida. And then everything went from Florida to Puerto Rico. And in the process, what happens to Texas when you're focused on Puerto Rico? Mm -hmm. What happens to Louisiana when you're focused on Florida? What happens to the U.S. Virgin Islands? 
Um, and to me, that's something that's always stuck with me is the one thing that has to change is we can't all be looking at the same place at the same time because we're not in a world anymore where one thing is happening at a time. Right. So it can't just be that we focus on, oh, and, and by the way, 2017, catastrophic wildfires were going on at the same time as catastrophic hurricanes, yep. right? So we can't just look at one thing and that does have to change how we build up an emergency management system that allows for us to really be focused on five or six disasters at a time. It's going to be critical to our survival. Hmm. Man. And looking at, you know, Jeff Slegelmich, I told you this, said you hmm. are one of his favorite people in a disaster space that you can provide practical advice. For those listening who really need that practical advice right now, what is that from you, Nicolette? What is that practical advice that we can take home today? First and foremost, I would say making sure that you are taking care of yourself mm. and your family. Um, we have a tendency to wanna take care of others, um, but especially in the middle of a pandemic and catastrophic wildfires, and one of the most hectic years that, that some of us have ever seen or could have ever imagined, making sure that we're taking care of ourselves first and foremost is important. And that will look different for different people. But a big part of that is making sure that you're taking care of your health. Mm. And so if you can't tend to your health, you really need to make sure that you are getting that squared away before you try to help others making sure that you have the prescription medicines that you need. There are a range of programs that can help you afford those medicines at this time. If you can't afford them, having an extra, making sure you have that extra refill on hand so that if you have to evacuate, you have your medicines, making sure that you have that list of your medical needs and your families on hand, keep it in your car, keep it in a Ziploc bag in your trunk. You know, those kinds of things are really important. And then if you can make sure that your wellness is taken care of, listening to your community listening to folks because if you listen people will tell you what they need but i always encourage before we rush to act we have to first listen and make sure that we're acting in a way that's in alignment with what people tell us that they need yeah take take that breath after right. this and then kind of okay this is what people need this is what our community needs take that breath definitely okay um thank you so much i so appreciate your work uh it just i feel like you're spotting the gaps and the holes and trying to fill them in. Thank you. No, I, I really appreciate that. And I may, may take that line and, and use it because <laughs> I think it's probably the best definition of what I do every day that I've ever heard. Oh, I'm just so trying to you. fill the gap, just trying to fill the gap. You know, you're my, you're my third expert that I've interviewed um, in the world of disaster preparedness and recovery and the aftermath. And I just, it's really opened my eyes in a sad way, I think, to go, this is, this is so bigger than I ever, ever thought. And you know, as a journalist, I've, I've reported on disasters and hurricanes in other parts of mm -hmm. the world, and I've just never, ever thought I would see it in my own backyard, and here I am. Absolutely. And thank you for doing this because it's also really important to make sure that we're talking about these issues and that we're doing it in a way that is both approachable and a little bit less scary, mm -hmm. but also practical so that people are preparing before it could be them. So thank you for the work that you're oh, doing as well. Yeah. And Daniel even said that too. You know, we, the idea that you're not alone 
going through this yes. is huge. That idea yes. that you're all alone is is absolutely horrible. So if you have this idea that, hey, my, my neighbor is going through the exact same thing I do, what a weight off your shoulders. Absolutely. Disasters can be isolating, mm -hmm. for sure. And reminding people that they are not alone and reminding them that being able to have that, that you know, Daniel always talks about social cohesion, that that interconnectedness, that ability for us to, to make sure that we're not accidentally leaving people behind and that we're not losing that fabric of a community because we've suffered a disaster. And that's what gets people through. So making sure that we are having these conversations and that we're opening those conversations up, not just to the disaster experts, but really to everyone, helps to deal with that sense of isolation that these events can cause. Mm, a thousand percent. All right, Nicolette Louis-Saint, I'm gonna let you go. I've gobbled up enough of your time. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, if you are listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app or Spotify, please subscribe, rate, review. It helps other people find us. You can also watch it at ktvl.com and on YouTube. Just search Offscript with Trish Close. One more time, Nicolette Lewis-Saint, the Executive Director of Healthcare Ready. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your guidance with me today. Thank you. Take care and be safe.